Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, June 15th, and today Dylan Byers joins us to talk about the recent trend of news organizations urging their reporters to dial back their use of Twitter. But will these edicts stand with the next presidential campaign fast approaching? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers. How you doing, Dylan? I'm doing great. Um, I want to pick up with you something we sort of mentioned in the course of our Washington Post discussion, which was a very long podcast last Friday, but like I really enjoyed it. I think we <laughs> pulled at a lot of uh, threads. So CNN's new president, Chris Licht, both quit Twitter and suggested his employees tweet less as he comes into his time as leading CNN. We saw Dean Bacay put out a memo internally at the New York Times a month or two ago, basically telling employees to not get in fights with other people on Twitter, that it's, it can be a waste of time, it hurts our brand. And then obviously the Washington Post drama last week where the relentless tweeting from Felicia Sanmez both caused a lot of drama inside the Post, but also they basically said she was being insubordinate by criticizing the company uh, in part publicly on Twitter and just spending a whole lot of time on a social media platform. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we have the CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, two of the three biggest news organizations in the country uh, and the world, in fact, with leaders saying to their employees, spend a little less time on Twitter. Do you think that trend, one, will percolate in other news organizations? And two, sort of a corollary question, do you think that beyond just telling reporters to tweet less, do you think people will tell their reporters to stop betraying their opinions and bias mm -hmm. and political views on Twitter? If you look at these same three news organizations, there is also editorially an either overt declaration of intention to pivot back toward the middle, or at least subtle hints that that's where the leadership of these organizations, and I mean both the editorial leadership and the business leadership, want those publications to go. I do think that there is a reflexive reaction to the feeling that during the Trump years, organizations let themselves become too opinionated, too woke, which is understandable in a way because in Trump, you had this very historic moment where it felt like you kind of had to pick a side. You could either be standing up for truth and for the fourth estate, or you could be playing into his hand. There's like a real desire to get away from this notion that 
there's certain things you can't say and certain things you can't publish and you don't want to offend the left too much. And I don't think that that's where the leading news organizations want to be. I think they still believe that they can fight to be reflective of the larger country. I think it's a really hard climate in which to do it. And I think that it will be tested when we get into the heat of the presidential cycle, because if you have a Trump-like figure insofar as there's somebody who is willing to lie, railing against the media, demonizing the media, you are going to get back into this position where news organizations are going to have to say, is it more important to us to appear unbiased or do we need to stand up on the side of truth and against the politician who is actively trying to convince people that up is down and a banana is an apple and whatnot? But the issue is there's so many bad faith actors on the right at this point that if Donald Trump literally makes something up and you say, well, that's not true. It's not a banana. That's an apple. That's one thing. And then there's something, Donald Trump might say something where there's a lot of gray area or it's just sort of a typical Republican position and reporters approach with the same hostility. Either way, the Republican is going to say, you're biased, you're biased, you're biased. But at some point they're a lost cause and you just have to sort to think about how can we make up some trust on the margins. And I do feel like tweeting less is one of those things. We are basically a year away at this point from the next presidential campaign starting. Whether Biden runs or not, the primaries will be next year. Do you see this sustaining itself through the like heat and intensity and the high wattage political environment of a presidential campaign? Or are people just going to fall back into old habits? Because I wrote this paper for the Kennedy School back in 2013, looking back on how Twitter sort of really hurt journalism, I thought, during the 2012 campaign. I remember I went to like all these big name journalists like John Dickerson, who I adore, said, this is in 2013, if I were running an actual news organization, I would probably ban people from Twitter in some way. And Garrett Hake at NBC said, I don't think Twitter helps anyone create great journalism. And Scott Conroy, who was a journalist at the time, is now doing screenwriting, says that Twitter warps your sense of perspective, but also the whole process by which your brain works. It provides all of this instantaneous information that makes our jobs much easier, but I often feel like my critical thinking skills have diminished since the day I signed up for it. But either way, like a lot of these journalists have been around the block. They're a little more senior. I feel like there's an incentive, if you're like a younger journalist on a campaign, to get as much attention as possible. It's just hard to think that Twitter will be better over the next two or three years? Well, you know, I will say that, well, first of all, I don't think Twitter is going anywhere because as a distribution platform for instant news, where most journalists kind of live, even if they're not as active on it as they might have been in their younger years, it is really unrivaled. And it does feel like that instant communication is a valuable service. But I would also say this, that generation of people who you're talking about who are getting older and their perspectives on Twitter are changing are more or less like the first generation of Twitter. And so I think that if you start to see more and more people as they get older and have more experience realizing that Twitter should be used cautiously and should be used to add value, not just to like throw your two cents into the ring and, you know, anytime you feel like you're an expert on something that you're not an expert on, maybe that sets the standard and maybe that lifts the standard for future young journalists who come into the game and understand, okay, wait a second, the people who have been at this for a while are not reckless on this platform. And so, yeah, I I actually do believe that Twitter can mature 
organically, not not among all the sort of partisan flamethrowers, but among journalists, I do. Twitter is a piece of this other problem that I see, which is journalism, political journalism especially, has a culture problem in that it is by and large created by people who live in large cities, went to college, increasingly diverse, but also still majority white, I believe, um, Mm -hmm. and also privileged. People who went to community college, people who didn't go to college, people from red states frequently don't show up in major newsrooms. And the controversial opinions and perspectives that find their way onto Twitter are frequently coming from people who are culturally to the left. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they are always wrong. And (laughs) and certainly people in red states are not always right. But if I traveled with a candidate or visited a primary state, there were deans of the local press corps in all of those states or serious veteran reporters in those states. So I could sort of learn from like Adam Smith in Florida or Jay Root in Texas, like people who knew the landscape, like local news journalists. Like since then, a lot of newsrooms have hollowed out. Those journalists have left. And political journalism is now created in cities by people who went to Yale and Wesleyan (laughs) and didn't come up through the traditional avenues of small town paper, mid-sized paper. Mm -hmm. And because of that, frequently you have people who haven't lived outside of New York, Washington, LA. And I just think they have a perspective that it really feeds into Republican criticisms that the press is out of touch, that the press is biased because a lot of reporters haven't fired a gun. A lot Mm -hmm. of reporters don't go to church. Then there's this like, that things become, start to feel less and less fair if you are not of that worldview. Again, maybe I'm looking at things through a very gauzy lens here, but I just that's just something I've noticed over time. I also think what you're getting at, which I know is a, a source of constant frustration for certain executive editors at certain publications, is like, there aren't that many really great journalists in the world. <laughs> there aren't. I mean, there aren't, right? And like Twitter is Twitter doesn't help that because Twitter creates a space where you can just kind of go and feel like you're doing journalism all day. And you can draft off of the conventional wisdom or of the opinions of people who are smarter than you or um, louder than you. If you're covering politics, you should get out there. And if you're not out there, that's not necessarily Twitter's fault. That's your fault. And yes, it was it was easier when when the assignment was to go there and there wasn't the distraction of Twitter and there were mentors who knew the local space. But the real world, the in real life, you know, that's still out there and you can still go do it. And I think what ideally you learn over time is that the story you're looking for isn't on Twitter, because if it's on Twitter, it's already somebody else's story. But it is hard. I mean, the incentives are wrong, right? That's the problem with Twitter is the incentives are off. And I think the question is, so long as there are enough journalists out there who are doing good work and introducing new things, then maybe that that can raise the bar. And by the way, I'm not I haven't given up hope that like that can happen at the local level, too. I think you usually find when you're in a presidential race or even when there's some sort of national emergency that happens somewhere. Those are often moments when like those local reporters who are still out there get an opportunity to shine. Yeah. So. Totally. For everyone listening, these are the kind of conversations that journalists have about Twitter all the time and have for the last like 10, 12 (laughs) years, I feel like. There's no easy answers here, but thank you for letting us riff. Dylan, talk soon, buddy. Pleasure, Peter. Thank you. 
Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Teddy Schleifer on his beat right now. Thanks, Peter. I have been writing and reporting this week about an obsession of the Silicon Valley, and frankly, Washington, political and philanthropic class. And that obsession is Sam Bankman-Fried. SBF, as he is known by initialism, is the founder and CEO of FTX, uh, the crypto exchange that is sort of a competitor to Coinbase and is a brand that's sort of omnipresent all across society right now. It's in TV. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. Sam has become a, a bona fide celebrity. And like many wealthy people before him, Sam, who's only 30 years old, is developing an interest in something that I'm obviously interested in, and that's media. Sam has become a philanthropic power broker. He's spending ungodly amounts of money on house races and on his charitable enterprises. So let's say that you have $100 and you want to figure out what you can do with it to help the world. Earning to Give is thinking about which causes, which charities save the most lives per dollar. This $100 can go as far as it possibly can to help the world. And he, in recent months, has quietly started a new mission to try to do a better job at agenda setting, to do a better job at framing the news. Obviously, this is not a new story, right? Lorraine Powell Jobs is the majority owner of The Atlantic. Mark Benioff owns Time Magazine. Jeff Bezos owns The Washington Post. Sam is doing something a little bit different. So Sam's main issue is pandemic prevention, basically setting up government bureaucracy that can prevent not COVID, but worse COVID. It's like a COVID that's more lethal than this COVID, but just as infectious. The, the argument that Sam makes is that we sort of dodged a bullet this time. What if COVID actually killed at a higher fatality rate than it does right now? And how do you prevent that in the future? It's not just through electing different politicians or electing different people who can be swayed by Sam's lobbyists. Part of it is about educating the American public about the issues that Sam cares about. Now, of course, this is like Sam asserting his power as you make donations to ProPublica, which he did earlier this year with $5 million to finance pandemic reporting. Maybe that means ProPublica is not covering something else that they didn't get funded. But that sort of is how nonprofit journalism works. It's very much driven by what a funder is interested in. And, and there sort of is this dance that's done between a newsroom with what it actually wants to cover and the funder who can't impinge on editorial independence, but they do decide what things are covered or not covered. And right now, Sam has hired foundation staff to start making inroads in media. He's basically out there talking with nonprofit newsrooms. He's out there looking at for-profit investments too. Like, I don't think this is necessarily only going to be charity journalism here. Clearly, Sam understands there's just a, a lack of reporting about like existential risk. It can be kind of heady stuff, you know, writing about future pandemics that don't exist, uh, monkeypox or otherwise, or, or nuclear proliferation. These are the things that the New York Times is not covering every single day. But niche audiences have a, have a platform, and uh, Sam is trying to create that platform. So more to come here, Peter. Uh, for folks who are interested, check it out at puck.news. Uh, for the latest reporting on Sam Bankman-Fried, Media Mogul. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.